Today's episode of The Beginning of the End is sponsored by Axel Brewing Company. Axel Brewing is making great beer in the Detroit area in the time-honored craft beer tradition with an eye toward innovation and an independent spirit. Enjoy any of their six beers, Red, Wit, Porter, IPA, Frank Black IPA, and Ruby Red IPA. Check them all out at axelbrewing.com. Hey there. So let's have a little fun with music today, okay? I'm going to bet that you would never in a million years talk about the great German composer Richard Wagner and Van Halen's David Lee Roth in the same conversation. Are you sure? How about Claude Debussy, the great French Impressionist composer and late singer of Nirvana, Kurt Cobain? Now, wait a minute. Don't turn off the radio. I promise I'm going to try to make this fun for you. Because it turns out that all of these people can tell the story of how dominance, by its very nature, is really the beginning of the end. From WDET in Detroit, you're listening to The Beginning of the End, stories about when, how, and why things end. I'm Alex Trujano. Thanks for tuning in. Richard Wagner was a German composer who wrote these powerful works that were huge and grandiose. And he used large orchestras and expanded the ideas of harmonic structure, you know, the ways chords are used in composition, to express deep, deep emotions in ways no one else did before him. His work created new directions in music at that time, and he influenced many composers after him. Well, he influenced authors because his personality and his music were both so strong and so powerful. That's Charles Greenwell, former assistant conductor of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. It will come as a surprise to nobody who knows music that Wagner is one of the supreme egoists in all of music. But considering the fact that he was one of the greatest geniuses we ever had as a composer, you can kind of overlook that. But again, not just his music, but the way he conducted. And when he conducted some of his own music, of course, he had a way of doing it that was just tremendously powerful and spellbinding. Then there's David Lee Roth. Diamond Dave, best known as the charismatic frontman of the rock band Van Halen. He epitomized the legend of the rock god with his dazzling showmanship, long blonde hair, fluorescent spandex outfits, and his famous high note screech that punctuated his hedonistic anthems. Van Halen was at the center of the triumphant and grandiose arena rock era where pyrotechnics, giant hair, and virtuosic guitar solos expressed a certain emotion. Party and get laid. The two main ingredients our ego, and a penchant for drama. That's Travis Wright, host of WDET's Culture City, an arts and culture program. You really can't have the rock god without the ego. And this goes all the way back to Mick Jagger, to Robert Plant, to David Lee Roth, to Axl Rose. I mean, the list goes on and on. The way that it manifests, I think, in the music is a mirror image of that ego. And that's kind of that triumphant, over-the-top, propulsive, anthemic sound that the rock god is known for. But then on the other side of that, you have to have some dramatics. That's where the pyrotechnics come in. That's where the hairspray made so much sense. The top hats, the canes, the cars, the women and their silicone, everything big. 
So, Wagner's time was during the Romantic era, which was a movement in the arts that originated in Europe during the late 18th century into the early 19th century. Well, the origins are fairly complex, but in a nutshell, it was brought on by a lot of social and political factors that occurred after the French Revolution. And there were many conflicts at the time between, let's say, capitalism and socialism, freedom and oppression, logic and emotion, objective and subjective ways of looking things. And one of the big splits was the difference between science and faith. And so a lot of creative artists rebelled against the constraints of the classical era, which at this point was viewed as rigid. Composers turned their attention to the expression of their individual emotions and innermost feelings. And they turned to paintings and literature for inspiration. And what also started to happen at this time, as opposed to the classical era in which a lot of the music was written for nobility, now music was being written for the masses rather than small elite audiences. And that's one of the things that made such a tremendous difference and made such a dominance of romantic music. So because of the Industrial Revolution, there were technical advances in instruments, like valves were invented for horns, thus aiding in the orchestra's growth and size and sound. And we saw the rise of virtuoso instrumentalists like Franz Liszt and Paganini. So the Romantic composers had a wide spectrum of colors and sound with which to express the deep emotions they were exploring. So we went from the very small to the very large in larger symphonies, larger symphonic poems, sonatas. And one of the things that the Romantic composers tried to do was to grab onto the listener and his emotions and keep him in a state of suspense as long as possible. Yes, this is the voice of the great Wagnerian soprano Birgit Nilsson. Listen to how this music just grabs onto your emotions and heartstrings and doesn't let go. It seems like during this period there's such an importance on this creating tension, creating tension, 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 tension. Tension, tension, Just yes. never let go, which keeps you at the edge of your seat. And then there's this giant payoff, but it's huge every time. And now this is the buildup to the big final climax. Brace yourself. And here it comes. Literally chills on my arm. Oh, yes. And tears in your eyes. That to me is just the epitome of the romantic spirit, the intensity, the power in that music. For me, that has never been surpassed. A truly amazing piece of music drama from the hands of the one and only Richard Wagner. Now, the rock god archetype of David Lee Roth saw its prominence in the late 20th century and gave rise to glam metal. A subgenre of hard rock that kind of infused pop-influenced guitar riffs and catchy hooks. This is the era of great flamboyance. 
Wait, that's a word, right? Yeah, that's a word. So when hair metal blows up, this is politically at the same time of like Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics and the whole idea of like 80s excess people buying into the idea of trickle down, you know, for a while there, the, you know, the uh, coming out of the Carter administration, coming out of Iran-Contra into the Cold War era, which was more hands off. But more than that, I think it really has to do with falling in line of the mass commercialization of everything. This is the generation that gives us MTV. This is the generation that for the first time gives us networks like CNN. Everything is starting to become homogenized. I, I think of I think of commercialization. And when you think of what commercial music really is, there has to be a sense of ephemera there, right? Like it's not going to last. It's just fun for now. It's disposable. That's the word that I'm looking at. There's something that's fun about it. Quick fun, quick, dirty fun. And then it's disposable. Uh, I think that encompassed a lot that was going on culturally in the 80s. It was fun. And the more over the top you were, the more fans you had. And because MTV was so huge, music videos were maybe more important than the actual song. So bands look for ways to be bigger, with more explosions, upside-down drum cage solos, more drugs, more sex, and more makeup. It's about keeping the party vibe alive, not letting it slow down for a moment. You skip that slow power ballad track, you go back and listen to that one with your lady. But at the moment, you are with your homies, you're hanging out, you're crushing some beers, you're about to go to the party, and you got to keep the vibe going from the house to the car to the show. The party can't stop. And I think that a lot of the -the over-the-top, rock god, front man, hair metal dudes, the whole purpose was to keep the party going. And it did, with bands like Motley Crue, Rat, and Bon Jovi. And later, in the 90s, we saw the rise of Poison, uh, Cinderella, and a band that became one of the biggest-selling rock bands of all time, with maybe one of the biggest rock god frontmen ever. Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses, who, like Wagner, was a huge egoist and larger-than-life. And also like Wagner, who used opera to express his innermost emotions, Rose did the same thing with the power ballad. Yeah, it's getting it's getting grandiose now. It's getting big. Just when you think it's gonna climax. Here's your tension. This is like the big tension thing. He's going to build it up. And we're going to wait for the release. And there it is. There's your release. And you got to give it to Slash. I mean, as over the top as this gets. How many notes right there? How many notes? He's playing like he's being paid by the note, Travis. (laughs) I mean, the sound of a power ballad, looking back on it from a production standpoint, impressive. Impressive. The way that they were able to go so big and so over the top. I mean, it's hilarious. Wagner, I think, would really appreciate it, you know? It excels in being this triumphant moment 
of rock and roll in America in a moment where perhaps the whole hair metal power ballad scene climaxed with that song. And then what happens next is really interesting. When we come back, we'll see how something so seemingly small could sort of eclipse something so huge. Stay with me. This is the beginning of the end. The Beginning of the End is proud to have Axel Brewing Company as a sponsor. And one of the things that's pretty cool about Axel's vibe is their president, Dan Riley. Dan loves the communal spirit of storytelling and wanted to create the perfect companion for sharing stories with friends. Beers. Beers that elicit a good story and a good time. Every beer tells a story, and I think we, we like to think that beer is the grist for great storytelling. So Dan joined forces with brewer Scott King, who shares Dan's love of books and stories and together created some really good beer. And here's the thing, each beer has its own unique origin story that inspires its personality and flavor. A character in Dan's mind brought to life by Scott. Here's Dan talking about the Ruby of the Ruby Red IPA. And I thought about Ruby as this, like, you know, this red-headed, green-eyed stunner, you know, um, the kind of inaccessible woman who's brilliant, has a huge vinyl collection um, that, you know, you might have a little bit of a shot with, and you'll go out with her for a few weeks knowing the whole time that you're going to get left shredded. And uh, so, so that was kind of... Yeah, I know. So that was kind of the story behind Ruby. And then Axel's we, Ruby Red IPA will not break your heart. In fact, it'll bring out some stories inside you that you didn't know existed. You should check out the stories of the characters that inspired their other beers, like the Frank Black IPA and more. Axel Brewing Company, made right here in the Detroit area. Honoring tradition left of the dial. Check them out at axelbrewing.com. And we're back. This is the beginning of the end. I'm Alex Trujano. So here we are in the late 18th century, where music was dominated by the German romanticism of Wagner. And in the late 1980s and 90s, the rock gods like David Lee Roth and Axl Rose topped the charts. Both epic and grandiose and influential, and in their dominance, both were poised to be eclipsed by something completely opposite of themselves. The people that took Wagner as just too much, they thought he'd gone overboard emotionally, musically, and they decided something had to be done about it. The rock god hair metal era is the peak of the extrovert. Audiences were ready for something more poignant. They were ready to be moved. They're ready to be emotionally affected in a way that I think a lot of people didn't even know. And as one writer so beautifully put at the end of German Romanticism, it spread like a blanket over all of Europe, and somebody had to come along and pull that blanket off. And that's exactly what Claude Debussy did. It no longer was about the party. It wasn't about the arena. It wasn't about the sports car. And the antithesis of that is Nirvana. Whose lead singer was, of course, Kurt Cobain, the anti-hero, or the anti-rock god. And as you all know, Nirvana ushered in grunge, which basically was like no theatrics and no real flamboyance. And sure, the music rocked and it was big, but not in the same way of the -the over-the-top glossy 80s productions and epic power ballads. You know, I think the moment that we see is like before this, we had rock gods holding up a huge mirror 
and this mirror was pointed towards a stadium of which tens of thousands of fans were able to see themselves feel exalted and party. And basically what Cobain did is he pulled out a little handheld vanity mirror and looked deep inside of it. The lyrics were more introspective and poetic and definitely less anthemic and hedonistic. And in that way was able to, I think, find as much unity and hit on as many universal themes as those big bands that were trying to attempt to reach out to tens of thousands. I think he was just trying to get to know himself a little bit more and then in that was able to find millions of fans. And hence, the end of the Rock God era. Same type of thing happened with Wagner. This time it was French composer Claude Debussy that some have credited for ending the dominance of German Romanticism with this little 11-minute piece, the very famous prelude to an afternoon of a fawn. This was like a door opening onto a whole new landscape, and many people who were tired of romanticism and the heaviness that it provided, they went through this door looking for new landscapes, new sounds. Which is exactly what Debussy's music provided, and it would later be referred to as Impressionism. Debussy and his Impressionist contemporaries sought to evoke a mood or atmosphere through a kind of sense memory, like the way Impressionist paintings were not perfect representations of an object, but more tried to capture the emotion or feelings that the object aroused in you. As opposed to the achieving of the sublime, like Wagner wanted to do, now they wanted to achieve beauty for its own sake. He had a couple of wonderful comments toward the end of his life. I love music passionately, and because I love it, I try to free it from barren traditions which are stifling it. A direct reference, of course, to Wagner and that whole heavy blanket I mentioned of, of German Romanticism. And what Debussy did, he liberated music from that, and, and others followed in his stead. So here's the thing. I'm the kind of guy that when I fall in love with a record or a song, I'll listen to it over and over again till it loses its power on me. I recently did that with the new Tame Impala record called Currents. There's a song in there called Yes, I'm Changing. And I literally listened to that song eight times in a row when I first heard it for days. And that whole record feels so good. It was spun over and over again in the car. And then one day I put it on and the excitement was kind of gone on me. I still love the record, it's still in my awesome pile, but it just didn't set me on fire like it did for those weeks that I listened to it over and over again. It's like my soul is looking for something new, like always in the background. And I think it's the same thing with any creative movement. Something dominates or grips us culturally and we're fascinated by it, we consume it, we pay the big bucks for it, and it becomes kind of the new normal. And when that happens, it instantly and naturally leaves room for a new idea to emerge, and then the cycle starts all over again. I mean, there might not have been a Debussy if Wagner wasn't so successful. Same for Roth and Cobain. 
And I think that's just how we are as human beings, and I'm glad. Because I really like the idea that when something ends, it's really the beginning of something new. Which, by the way, I could use a new record to obsess over. So send me some ideas, would you? And thanks so much for listening. You made it to the end. The Beginning of the End is a production of WDET and is made by me and Shelby Jopi. Thanks to Charles Greenwell and Travis Wright for talking to me, and thanks to Laura Weber Davis and Lou Bluen for editorial support. Our intern is Max David Howard, and our theme is by Detroit's own Duende. Big thanks to our sponsor, Axel Brewing, who are making some really great beers right here in the Detroit area. Check them out at axelbrewing.com. I'm Alex Trujano on Twitter at A Trujano Detroit, and so is the show at B-O-T-E Podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or however you get your podcasts. And as always, you can help the show grow by writing a review in iTunes. And I'd really, really appreciate that. If you have a beginning of the end story, go to our website and find out how you can share it with us. Maybe I'll call you for an interview. Our website is beginningoftheend.org. And thanks again for listening. See you next time. The End.